Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? Not a whole lot. It's the end of January, which feels like January has been going on forever, which is kind of okay, too, because, I mean, it also feels like life is going too fast. So maybe it's okay to be in a bit of a cold sludge month for longer than it feels like we actually are. My January feels like it just started. So I'm amazed that we're (laughs) at the end of January. But again, like it just feels like there's no time out here in California. I'm still wearing t-shirts. I'm like, what is life? (laughs) When, when, where are the seasons? I don't know. It's a little, it's a little weird. (laughs) Um, But here we are. We have some things to talk about today. But first, yes, we are at Gemma level. <laughs> we are. Named after, as we mentioned at the, on the last podcast, named after amazing activist and human uh, Sarah Gemma. And I mean, I don't know, like that means we promised that uh, if we reach this level on our Patreon with uh, donations, which means that we are, uh, people are donating $1,000 a month to us collectively, that means that we would organize two live shows so we need a way to figure out where our second live show is going to be our first one is definitely going to be in Edmonton I mean I don't know if we're going to go to Edmonton first but we will have at least a a live show in Edmonton because we promised um but the second one we just don't know how we're going to figure it out so where should we go we had somebody on on uh Twitter suggest that we go to Montreal but we just don't know how to choose. So if you have any ideas of how we should choose, let us know. And speaking of the Patreon, I'm sure Nora has some folks to shout out. Yes. And so um, if you uh, don't recall, sometimes we thank the folks um, that have um, either become new donors or have changed their pledge in the last couple of weeks. And so I want to thank uh, Moremi, Mike, Katie, PA, and Kevin so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. We could not do this show without you and without everyone else that's giving us um, a couple bucks or even sometimes a bit more than a couple bucks every month to bring you the magic that is Sandy and Nora. La magique. <laughs> La magie. <laughs> I don't know. I try sometimes. <laughs> well, and you know what? We've got to we've got to get all of the happy kind of um, fun stuff out of the way because today's episode is not going to be magic. In fact, it's going to be extremely real and depressing, and uh, I think full of condemnation. Is that is that a fair way to describe today's episode? I think that that's a fair way to describe today's episode. So we are going to be doing kind of like a what the fuck are the cops doing roundup around the country because there's some things that you folks should know about um we should always be kept abreast of when the cops are doing some some bullshit and uh as per usual uh, there's a, no shortage of examples for us to tell you about um but before we get there we did want to mention uh something a couple things uh that are happening this week or have happened this week so um nora why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happening for january 29th Yes. Hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast before January 29th, you have an opportunity to uh, commemorate the third anniversary of the shooting at the Islamic Cultural Center in St. Foy, Quebec City. It is, uh, I can't believe we're already at year three. And the amazing thing about how uh, commemoration of an event like this um, kind of happens as time rolls on is there's been a bit of a shift, I would say, in Quebec City organizing 
of uh, involvement of people who were present that night and so survivors of the shooting whereas before the the real focus of course was on the families um, and, and their families remain a, a big part of of that work as well but now that people are, are trying to figure out bring sense to what happened and how do we use what happened to to change things to ensure that that never happens again and it can't just be folks in Quebec City doing this work. Uh, I know that there are events uh, being uh, planned across Canada, but if you are unsure, uh, go on Facebook, type in January 29th, see what pops up uh, in your community, if anything, or be in touch with me directly. I've got a bit of an idea of what is happening across Canada. Do something to commemorate that day because we can't forget and uh, I think outside of Quebec, a lot of people feel like it has been forgotten. Um, I can say that it has not been forgotten, uh, certainly not in the community where it's happened um, and the broader the broader community. But we need to find ways to to continuously not just express our solidarity, but use the the event for um, but use what happened to address the conditions that allowed it to happen. So how do we fight Islamophobia? How do we fight far right hatred? How do we fight people using guns uh, to kill other people. There's a lot of stuff that's been wrapped up in that event. And so hopefully uh, you can take a moment this Wednesday evening and uh, commemorate that in some way. Yeah. And um, I do, you know, just want to mention, uh, you know, like every every year, uh, as we know, Bell Canada has like this Let's Talk Day uh, to talk about mental health. And uh, they made they made that day January 29th, which feels um like imp- like almost impossible that something like that could happen if this had been you know on uh, January 29th uh, that what we should be commemorating had been a different tragedy with different uh, mm-hmm. victims uh, but you know there's this thing that Bell Canada does every year and uh, they have it on the 29th and I just think that that's pretty reprehensible for for that reason in addition to the reasons uh, why you know people will, um, decry the whole campaign altogether because, of course, it is it is Bell uh, that uh, and the way that they they uh, have a monopoly on how inmates are able to communicate with people outside of a correctional facility that often doesn't allow people to speak uh, who need to speak to one another. So um, I know there's also a campaign going on this week. Uh, you know, the Bell Let Us Talk campaign. Um, so please look into that as well. I feel like we've done a we did a Bell Let's Talk uh, episode last year, or at least an episode that touched on some of these themes. So definitely go check that out if you're interested. And I'm so glad you raised that because I I kind of like block Bell Let's Talk out of my my vision and <laughs> my plane of vision every year because of like since uh, 2017 January 29th has been for me uh, a day of remembrance um, and action. Uh, against Islamophobia and it it's really shocking actually that Bell has clung to that date and not just changed it because it's a random date like they've just been commemorating a random date that they chose however long ago they chose it so yeah, yeah screw you Bell and, um, and congr- congratulations to the folks who are fighting to change the um, the costs of phone calls within prisons because it has seemed like uh, mainstream media has taken a lot of attention to your campaign and I hope that that will result in some concrete changes. And finally, one more thing to discuss before we get into what we wanted to discuss today. I don't know if y'all saw, I know y'all know our history, Nora and I, as uh, student union uh, survivors. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I don't know if you've seen 
but there's been quite a bit of news this week about the Ryerson uh, University administration announcing that they are refusing to recognize the Ryerson Students' Union as the official representative of students at Ryerson University anymore, uh, meaning that they will no longer collect funds on their behalf and forward over funds on their behalf as they are uh, required to do under uh, an agreement that they have, under a uh, uh, referendum that students have uh, affirmed and reaffirmed, and under some, you know, pretty uh, clear case law of like other institutions trying this being sued and being told they can't do this so in any case uh, that has happened and Nora don't know if you know used to be president of the Ryerson Students Union and I'm sure you have some thoughts <laughs> do you do you have some thoughts yeah, it's so funny when you said that. It's like in my mind, uh, I, I am not a former president of the Ryerson Students Union. It might, that might seem weird, but I, even though I spent three years on that executive, I, I actually do forget that I spent one year as president. And probably I forget that one year because that one year was a fucking nightmare. And it was a nightmare mm-hmm. because uh, I had to throw my body uh, in front of a of a train <laughs> that was trying to destroy the organization through um, a lot of uh, tactics that I hear uh, the university is responding to right now: corruption and giving money and gifts and this kind of thing to your to your friends. I um, I had a lot of folks in my mentions try to tell me that. Um, that this is a corrupt group of people that need to be punished and that the university is doing the right thing. And to them and to everybody, I want to say autonomous student organizing is the only way that students can fight for their rights. And that 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 is the broadest in the broadest sense of the word. Fighting for your rights on campus can mean fighting for your right to, to be in class and to not have to pay uh, through the nose for your tuition fees. It can mean fighting for your right to use the right bathroom, fighting for your right to not be in a dangerous situation regarding cars on your campus, like everything. And when you take away students' autonomous organizing, you silence students' legitimate voice to be able to be critical of their administration and of the people who control power within their communities. When Doug Ford created the student choice initiative that's what he was trying to do he was trying to destroy autonomous student organizing in ontario and it threw the student movement into complete chaos obviously and there's been mistakes made in, in the student movement and how people responded to that and maybe sandy we should do another another show at some point on that whole mess but the student choice initiative has been found by judges to have not been uh legally uh, appropriate because of course the the government doesn't have the authority that it took out to to put in the student choice initiative and the university is like the fucking seals that they are just clapped and uh, made seal noises uh, towards doug ford was like whatever you want in seal and so um, that compounded with the fact that the university at Ryerson is taking away this agreement. I mean, like, first of all, fuck you, Ryerson administration, to the fucking highest degree I can express myself possible. I will be writing every one of you motherfuckers uh, in the next couple of uh, days to express my extreme outrage to this. But for students at Ryerson, I mean, and maybe like someone should just cut this little bit out and send it to everybody you know at Ryerson. If you are a student at Ryerson University, there's a general election coming up and there's a general meeting coming up. And both of these events are incredibly important for you to take back control of your student union from corrupt little shits who have been running it. And the university knows that both events are coming up and that both events actually offer students the opportunity to create a clean slate um, to find new representatives to be able to restaff that place Uh, and that's why they're acting now because they want to act before 
uh, before students are able to try and clean this mess up themselves. I also hear that this implicates the student newspaper, the eye opener, that this fee agreement does not only cover the Ryerson Students Union, but also covers other ancillary fees. Um, and, and so I hope also student journalists on campus will take this extremely seriously too and, and find a way to fight this together. The attacks on autonomous student organizing are, are, are trying to destroy students' abilities to organize and to do stuff together. And when students come together and they, and they fight for what they think is right, it, it tends to be progressive. It tends to be radical. That's why the student movement is such an important driver of radical politics in pretty much every single part of the world. And so you folks need to fight this with everything you've got. You need to force the university to not ever mention this again and, and, and make them feel ashamed for even trying to do this. And just know that back when I was there and we were facing some seriously crisis level shit, the people that were making the crisis in my time are now working for the administration at Ryerson. And so <laughs> this is not a neutral decision that they're just like, oh, we have to do this. This is an extremely political move and they think that they can get away with it. I mean, I didn't even know about that agreement. I mean, I never never read that agreement and I was involved that student union for five years and so this is this can be one you can win you just need people who are dedicated and who are a bit, little bit strategic and who can organize enough students to a general meeting to take the student union back over it's fully possible and I know you folks can do it and let's never forget again you know like so many of these student unions one of the reasons why they want to be able to attack it in this way and set these sorts of precedents is because student organizations have in this country historically and continue to fund a lot of very progressive uh, organizations within and outside of a university and have major impact on a lot of the social goings on going ons of uh, uh, movements in this country and so um, even if you're not at Ryerson you should be paying attention to this and um, letting people know how you feel um, about uh, the university taking such a unilateral um, kind of uh, anti-democratic approach to um, an issue that's not their issue. It's an issue that belongs to the students. But anyway, we digress. Cops. You introduced this already, um, the WTF ACAB edition. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't know if y'all have been paying attention to the news, but there has been a lot of flurry of activity of um, just some fucked up cop bullshittery um, happening from coast to coast. And so we wanted to uh, just take a moment to remind people who might be listening um, to of uh, how in Canada, um, often we get the the message that, you know, uh, cops here are different or that, you know, we uh, the police have hard decisions to make or community policing is the solution and all of these things. And we have constantly talked about, as long with other social movements and people, activists across Canada, talked about how, in fact, uh, the police are not a, a service that we need. There are different ways to think about providing safety to a community. And in fact, both uh, historically in their purpose in, in this country, uh, original purpose to quote unquote clear the land, uh, meaning remove, kill uh, indigenous peoples that um, settlers could could take land and to, to safeguard property, meaning to make sure that any escaped enslaved people would be returned to their owners, like the original purpose of the police. To, to today, the police 
are a very uh, dangerous group of people uh, for numerous communities um, in Canada and oftentimes targets these communities in different ways than people who don't fit in to those communities. And so we are going to talk to you about a number of different ways that some of this fucked upness is happening right now. And I want to start with the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Have you heard what's been happening there, Nora? I have heard what's been happening. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, um, a lot of the uh, commissioners finished their terms over the last couple years who are on the Human Rights Commission. But since Doug Ford has been in office, the government has refused to um, to appoint new people to the commission. And so essentially for a while, there was literally no one on the commission except for the commissioner herself, Renu Madani. <laughs> so it was like, um, what's happening? And many of us who were in the know about this uh, were thinking that uh, the government was going to try to eliminate the Human Rights Commission. Like there was a lot of whispering that perhaps that was going to be the next step because what are they doing not allowing the commission to do its work by not having the, the necessary commissioners to take a look at any sort of uh, complaints that might be coming its way um, or to assist with any of the, the different studies that the Human Rights Commission does. Well, this week it was revealed uh, that the government had quietly appointed a couple people to the Human Rights Commission. Oh. Mm-hmm. I'd ask if it was Doug Ford's mom, but I know she just died, so. <laughs> it is It is not Doug Ford's mom, but they have appointed a cop. <laughs> so, <laughs> Constable Randall Arsenault, who is a Toronto Police Service cop, has been appointed uh, to be a commissioner on the Human Rights Commission. And I don't know if people have been paying attention to what some of the big topics that the Human Rights Commission has been, has been looking into in the last few years, but one of those major deep dive studies that they um, announced was looking into policing in this province and how uh, policing, uh, uh, there's a, a systemic way that policing is violating people's human rights. And so how astonishing um, is it, though, is it that Doug, Doug Ford would appoint a police officer uh, to the commission? I am not astonished by that, as I know you're not either. No. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed under the Ford, uh, the Ford administration, and this is not something that most people would probably see because you don't probably get these emails, but... Uh, the news uh, room, the Ontario newsroom, which sends out uh, press releases about everything that the Ontario government's doing, I get these releases. And one of the big changes that I noticed under Doug Ford is that I'm getting constant updates about how many fucking cadet police people are being graduated or how many new prison guards are getting graduated. It's like every month I'm getting another update of some new number of the security apparatus in Ontario that they're celebrating the hire of. Doug Ford hmm. loves cops, which makes sense because he's also a small-time drug dealer. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so this is not surprising. It, it, the, it is shocking and it is disgusting, and it definitely calls into question a couple of parts about the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Number one, how uh, political the, these appointments are, 
and and how are we deciding as a society or how is the Ontario government deciding who gets appointed to what? So like generally, not just appointing a cop to that, that's eventually going to be the one to say that cops racially profiling people is cool because um, whatever like harebrained rationale they're going to come up with. It, it is um, a good reminder that that the Ford government is a government that doesn't care about average people, that they care only about power and protecting people with that power, which is why the police play a, such an important role. I don't know, Sandy, if you saw the, the picture that circulated from last week from um, from a, an announcement that Doug Ford made where. No, I don't think so. He's like in front of a of a podium that says oh yeah I saw it I saw it it. yeah he says something about communities or whatever and then he's like got I don't know how many freaking cops behind him like 200 or something and they all have their guns out yeah they sure do and it's like Peel police the finest cops of all of Ontario (laughs) right (laughs) behind this guy and you know I I saw someone take um and if if you don't know the Peel police are notorious for being like the most corrupt uh, in the in the well, perhaps in Ontario, but definitely in the GTA area. Yeah, I don't know how police, how Peel police, like compared to like Saskatoon or you know, Calgary police, but they're they're bad. <laughs> yeah, they're bad. So you know, I thought that that was pretty. Um, that was a pretty uh, good reminder of of who is who matters in Doug Ford's Ontario, considering that you have more than a million people who are on rotating strike. You have parents uh, and, and guardians who are like tearing out their hair, trying to figure out what to do with their kids while um, while teachers fight for their like their quality of job. And um, and we've got a premier that is just like loving, loving being in the presence of such pulsing male power. <laughs> God, so disgusting. Um, the one other thing that we should mention about this, uh, this like ridiculous and astonishing appointment is that uh, I don't know if people are familiar with the way that uh, the the Ontario government like appoints people to like public service uh, boards like the Human Rights Commission. But basically there's like, you know, uh, some sort of website that you can go on and see what's available and you can apply. And so, uh, you know, people like to be commissioners and there were like 300 people who applied um, and, you know, then there's a body that's supposed to take a look at those applications and make recommendations and so on. So the people who applied, and uh, there were 300, I think, is uh, was what was reported. Um, none of those people was were this cop. <laughs> <laughs> that cop is not one of those 300 people. So not only is this a ridiculous appointment because of who this person is, but Doug Ford actually circumvented the entire way that you're supposed to kind of like uh, democratically or semi-democratically appoint people to these commissions to make sure that this person got on. And again, this is uh, quite recently after, you know, in 2018, um, uh, the the commission made a, a quite large and scathing report about uh, the state of policing and racial profiling in Ontario. And so this is... Uh, uh, quite an astonishing thing. I don't know what we're going to see next, but I know it ain't going to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I have a little bit of trivia for you. Um, how much do you think Randall Joseph Arsenault, who works for Municipality and Services in Ontario, maybe not the same guy, probably is because that's how they classify police in the Sunshine List. How much do you think he made in 2018? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, he's on the Sunshine List, so I know it's over 100 grand. 
130? Oh, you're good. One hundred and thirty thousand three hundred dollars. Yeah, you know I look at these lists. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and then he of course he'll get a, a little bit of money as well for being on the commission, although that nothing compared to uh, his cop salary. So there you go. Cops make a lot of money in Ontario and the rest of Canada. Yep. Was there um I know you you started at the center of uh of Canada's universe in uh in Ontario. Um was there another Ontario example you wanted to go to or should we whip off to the east coast? I mean, there's a couple of other Ontario examples, but we don't have to stick to Ontario. We could just keep coming bouncing back. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. go to the east it is, coast. What's going on that in That gravitational Scotia? pull. That gravitational pull is so strong. <laughs> we're just going to keep coming back to Ontario. Of course. I, uh, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners saw this story this past week. Um, a woman named Santina Rao was at a Walmart in Halifax with two young children, a three-year-old and a 15-month-old. And she had just left the electronics section of the Walmart where she purchased $90 worth of electronic stuff and had a receipt to prove that. And, you know, because we have these like this obsession with cramming every single thing you can ever purchase into one store, uh, she was able to go from the electronics section to the food section. And she put in her basket uh, or cart uh, a head of lettuce, two lemons and a grapefruit. So here's a woman with two kids who's just dropped 90 bucks on electronics and now needs some like lettuce and lemons and a grapefruit and uh, starts to make her way towards the cash as one does. She is then tackled to the ground by a combination of cops and Walmart employees. She's given uh, a black eye and roughed up quite significantly. And they thought that uh, she was trying to steal uh, the lettuce, the lemons, and the grapefruit. Um, Of course, what has happened since then is an intense discussion about racial profiling and how you're not even safe to go to a Walmart megastore in Halifax if you are black. Hmm. And yet, uh, and I know a lot of the activists uh, who are working in Nova Scotia right now are trying to freeze the budget of the, the of the police over in uh, Nova Scotia because, and yet, even though these types of things continue to happen, um, these police services tend to be the only parts of budgets that are never cut or frozen in times of great economic strife, which it seems like we are always in. And so, you know, please pay attention to what those uh, activists are doing right now, because, um, you know, I think as we continue to tell you more stories about what's going on across the country, it I think it's very clear that there needs to be... Um, uh, as a, a first step, like we need to stop giving these people fucking money. <laughs> like this is this yeah. is fucking like, ridiculous ugh. that anything like this would happen. This person is doing regular shit, shopping for food and electronics. Like, come on. Yeah, and and there's also I think a, a, an element of this that I think is really important for um for for especially for white Canadians to to like consider. This attack was all caught on film. And so there's there's no question about what happened here. This is someone who had a receipt from one section of the store going to another section of the store. You can imagine any number of situations where someone would have been, maybe they didn't actually pay from one part of the store to another part of the store uh, because it's not always clear, right? Maybe it wasn't caught on, on tape. And so it was it was her word against 
uh, what happened to her. Th- this is a, an experience that racialized people have in this country all the time, being followed uh, when they're in a store, being kicked out when they're in a store. There was a, uh, an Indigenous grandfather and his granddaughter, of course, were uh, put in handcuffs outside of a Bank of Montreal in, um, in Vancouver. Um, like, we have created the structures to make it impossible to just live if you're not white in this country and 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 far too often white Canada is like you know what there's not enough good enough proof maybe we don't know maybe we can't tell and in the case of Santina Rao it's all there the evidence is very fucking clear and all the police can say is oh we're gonna have an investigation and their budgets are still probably gonna go up next year and so you know if we're not tying that that connection between uh, austerity policies that underfund all of our social services that money gets funneled into security services to make sure that cops are getting more and more and more and more money um, that's a that's a fundamental shift in our society and and it makes people unsafe and and it's too easy for white Canada to ignore this and so you know if you're listening and you've got folks and you're white and you've got folks in your family that ignore this like send them this podcast <laughs> and be like mm-hmm. we gotta we gotta dial this stuff back we have to cut and cut and cut our our police uh, budgets to get rid of this ridiculous glut in the system. Because as Sandy said at the beginning of the episode, like, because as Sandy said at the beginning of the, of the episode, like, why do we even have cops, period, let alone the number of cops that we have? <laughs> if we're paying them to harass people shopping at Walmart, like, what is the point? Oh, the point is to maintain white supremacy, right? That is the point. And so every time we take money out of public transit and put it into cops, it's to maintain white supremacy. Literally, that is what's happening. So now that we're in BC, why don't we also talk about um, what's happening at Wet'suwet'en? Now, I think that this, uh, you know, Wet'suwet'en deserves its own uh, episode. And so we're, uh, you know, just to give you a little um, uh, preview, definitely going to be doing uh, a deeper dive into this next week. But uh, again, maintaining white supremacy, um, the cops uh, have been deployed uh, and, you know, for all of the talk about a nation to nation relationship, for all of the talk of, you know, NDP governments being better uh, in terms of engaging with particular communities, you know, in BC, where there is an NDP government, RCMP has been uh, moving in on Indigenous uh, uh, people who are uh, protecting the sovereignty of their of their land in Wet'suwet'en and ended up arresting a number of activists who are um, doing what they have rights to do. These are rights that are enshrined in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which, uh, you know, Canada had finally adopted after being one of the few countries in the world to, to kind of drag their feet on it. And of course, the, the province, uh, BC as a province, has implemented this as well. But it's like, uh, apparently, this is something that can be done to uh, take photos and make great announcements, but is not actually having any impact on the way that Canada and all of its the, the state agencies uh, engage uh, with Indigenous people, because those arrests should not happen. People should not be threatened um, uh, with having their land uh, taken from them and given to corporations that continue to destroy the environment and their homes. That's the most frustrating part about all this, right? It's like we we understand that that there is like impending doom on the climate crisis side of the equation. Like we we can see this. We see 
massive fires we see massive floods we see we see our temperatures rising we see like snow disappearing in our winters there are people who have cared for this land for time immemorial for as long as anyone has any ever conceived of life on in north america and part of caring for the land is to say oh you know what maybe our obsession with with oil resources natural gas whatever it is maybe that actually is is what's poisoning our water supply maybe effluent from these corporations uh, has caused cancers and has caused um has caused physical and mental delays in people and has caused and has poisoned people and has killed people maybe uh, maybe when we talk about reconciliation, what we should be talking about is actually ending the colonial drive for as much land as possible that Canada was was founded on. But of course, it doesn't actually mean that. And this is where uh, the progressive rhetoric uh, of the liberals certainly falls apart. And also we've been seeing of uh, the NDP is falling apart, too, that true reconciliation requires not just um funding programs and and helping to like redress a lot of the of the ills of the past the ills of the present but it literally means land must be given back that land has to stop being held uh, by canada in crown crown holdings or in private property and it needs to be given back to the communities uh or who, who for for millennia have had uh responsibility to take care of that land and like until politicians either can finally stop talking about reconciliation we can just be honest that they're just they're just interested in continuing continuing the colonial project um, that has been uh canada from from the first day or we actually have politicians who are ready to start saying okay what what does this look like what does giving the land back look like and what it certainly does not look like is surveillance by air surveillance by drone uh blockades set up inside inside of communities um, destabilizing uh, governance structures through um, through mental uh, mental gymnastics on who controls what and who is responsible for what, and actually letting communities have that final say. I mean, like what's happening in Wet'suwet'en is such a, a classic story in Canada of Indigenous people fighting back against corporate Canada or international corporations to say, you know, enough, in, literally enough is enough. You cannot continue to take and take and take from this land and expect that people are going to continue to let you do that. And, you know, uh, my hat's off, uh, full solidarity to everyone who is involved in that work. My hat goes off to all the activists who are occupying um, ferry terminals and other parts of, uh, of of infrastructure that that can tell that can tell the British Columbia government that can tell the federal government that we are serious and that action needs to happen um, before before it's too late for all of us. I mean, this is the saddest part is that that people are putting their lives on the line to save everybody, including the people who are trying to remove them from that land and to make as much money as they can. I mean, we we live in such a truly sick society that. Anyway, I, I, I'll go on a whole other uh, level uh, rant, but I guess maybe I'll, I'll stick to the, to the topic at hand. The role of the police and the role of the military in all of this, of course, is to clear, to, to subjugate, to cause harm, and, to, and to, to criminalize people. And we pay for that. Like, we Canadians pay for that. Whether or not we support what they're doing, we pay for it. And so we really need to be much louder in not just saying that the police needs to do better or to, uh, to not 
be so mean but no we why do they exist we need to start talking about divesting from military and uh security forces within this country and finding alternatives that are not criminalizing dissent to allow for actual democracy because this is all also just a complete affront on democracy and people's rights to express themselves and to take action over uh communities and 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 lands that they've always had act uh, had the control over yeah, you know, I, in terms of, you know, talking about like the purpose of the police, uh, I was sitting in a crim law class this week, um, taking criminal law. Um, and, you know, my professor asked at one point, what happens when uh, you commit a crime? As, you know, we're, we're just starting the class and starting to think about whatever. And then someone responded with, oh, punishment. And then he was like, yes, punishment. And then he moved on. And in my <laughs> head, I was like, what? <laughs> the answer is actually nothing. The vast majority of people will commit crimes and absolutely nothing will happen. It's only very few people who become criminalized, okay? And that's something that I hope that people who are listening to people to this understand or maybe you'll understand after this right most of the people in this world who commit what society deems as a crime whether it should be committed deemed as um, like socially deviant or not whether that's you know like years ago smoking um, uh, marijuana or uh, you know today I don't know stealing a pack of gum from a, a convenience store the majority, the vast majority of things that we denote as crime result in absolutely nothing the fuck happening to anyone who does, uh, who engages in it. And, you know, especially if those quote unquote crimes are against particular types of people. So like, you know, we have all of these uh, cases of uh, women being killed by their partners who um, you know, we just can't seem to figure those things out. All of these cases of sexual violence, and uh, we just can't seem to figure those things out. But there's very particular communities that are criminalized in that the things that they regularly engage in are scrutinized uh, by society and at times made illegal. Um, and so you can look to the way that we've dealt with uh, uh, people using substances, particular substances, to how uh, Canada historically has dealt with people speaking particular languages in public um, or expressing their gender identity in a particular way and how those communities get criminalized. And then we, we send um, the police in to control those communities. While the rest of crime, quote unquote crime, whether it's what the Ford family has engaged in for years or uh, what a corporation will do um, in order to swindle money from people, like nothing ever happens to those folks. It's very like if, if you take a look at the entire landscape of what happens uh, when people engage in, um, you know, things that are against the rules, um, it becomes very and who gets in trouble when things are against the rules, it becomes very clear that the police are actually only meant to control um, whether uh, in the ways that we want them to or not, a very small subset of people. Your your comments bring me back to something that's happened this week in Quebec City, and I think that this is probably a good place to end, which is um, how, you know, you think, if, if you believe that 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 the law exists to keep us safe and to to stop you know criminals from doing bad stuff. 
I don't think that there's a better example of how that's just all such a failure and such a lie than the murder of Mylène Lévesque. Mylène is from Saguenay, and she would come to Quebec City every uh, couple of weeks to work in a massage parlor. And there was a guy who was going to the, the massage parlor she worked at that had been banned from it um, because they found him to be creepy and violent. And she, Melen, had agreed to, to see him outside of the, of the parlor. And he offered her $1,300 to do that. And so she went and, you know, they spent whatever time together. And then a, a week later, he asked her again if, if she would do it. And this time he offered her $2,000. And so she agreed. And so they met in a hotel in Quebec City. And, uh, and he murdered her. And this was the second woman he's murdered. He, he was on uh, uh, serving a life sentence for having murdered his uh, ex or his partner in 2004. In 1997, he did seven days of jail time in Ontario for murdering someone he was or for um, for being violent towards someone he was dating. And one of the conditions of his like semi freedom. So going through that process of being granted uh, like like a leave from jail for whatever for good behavior the parole board of canada um actually said that despite the fact that he poses a moderate risk despite the fact that he still is violent he he's clearly still violent towards women that this guy has the right to to visit uh whoever he needs to visit to have his sexual desires dealt with this is written in the documents that kind of govern his semi-freedom uh, release and I mean, if that doesn't just say everything about whose rights are more important in this society than others, uh, I think, you know, there's no better example that here is a violent individual who should not have the right to sexual gratification ever. I mean, he's got a violent history with women. He's murdered his 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 partner. And, 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 the, and that murder was gruesome. And he wrote horrible things about her after he murdered her on the wall of their of their home. They had they didn't have children together, but they both had children. And um, and they knew he was violent. And and so Milan becomes the sacrificial lamb to ensure that this man's sexual de- desires are are what? Met? Who cares, right? Yeah, it's, it's so, so disgusting. disgusting. No, who cares? I mean, this fu- this guy is like lucky that he's able to fucking walk around like on the streets like <laughs> he, he should. It, it doesn't make any sense. But this is this is the society that 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 we live in where we're certain People are, do have that privilege of having of safety and having rights, and other people do not. And in this case, Milan, as a sex worker, as uh, a young woman, um, did not have that right, and um, and she now doesn't have the right to see the age of twenty three. And now, you know, uh, uh, just wrapping up in Ontario with just some small little things to say. Uh, you know, um, officer, uh, f- the the officer who um, killed Sammy Yatim, uh, for those of you who remember uh, that case, uh, as, uh, a man who was on a streetcar and who was shot uh, and tased several times uh, by a police officer. Um, uh, J- Constable James Forcillo. Um, so he's been granted full parole as of this week. Um, so, uh, you know, take from that uh, what you will. I suppose you can... You know, I think he was convicted of attempted murder, but not actually murder because it was like a, a very bizarre uh, decision um, because of, you know, how many shots were fired and when they were fired and so on. But it, it just, um, you know, it just, the, the way that uh, police are able to act um, 
uh, with varying levels of impunity, uh, even when we can see very clearly caught on camera um, uh, the uh, act of, of something that's gone terribly wrong, um, them acting terribly wrong to someone who was having uh, a mental health crisis. I mean, you know, that officer is now out on parole and DeFonte Miller's uh, trial. And of course, that that is the case of um, a teenager who was uh, beat up by two off-duty uh, cops, the Terrios. Um, and then, you know, that that was not and, and DeFonte Miller, as a result of that beating, um, lost an eye. And, uh, you know, he's a black man. And it was this kind of targeted thing where these these two off-duty cops see him walking in the neighborhood, ask him where he's from, as though, you know, they're allowed to to ask uh, anyone or demand any uh, from anyone that they have the right to walk on a public sidewalk um, and then start chasing him and beating him to the point where he, he loses an eye and then did not report it to the Special Investigations Unit. Uh, DeFonte Miller's lawyer had to report it to the Special Investigations Unit. Well, that trial resumes on January uh, 29th. And so, you know, again, a whole host of examples of why, you know, the police are shit everywhere. And Canada is no exception.